Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to uh, look into your word today. Father, we thank you for our nation. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who cares enough about our nation uh, to, uh, to preserve it for so long. But Father, we pray that we might repent and that, Father, we might come back to you. Uh, Lord, we would just pray that your promise would hold true, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is Independence Day, uh, so happy Independence Day, everyone, uh, for America. And I love America. And I want to start off with just a few quotes from our founding fathers to uh, set the stage for today. I think that you'll, you'll understand as we're going through this that, that our founding fathers uh, were undoubtedly uh, viewed this as a Christian nation. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a topic of, of Christian nationalism. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing to start off with what our founding fathers say. But it starts off with George Washington, and he observed, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity— Religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim tribute to patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. These firmest pros or props of duties of men and citizens, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that a nation, excuse me, national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. John Adams said this, Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue, and this cannot be inspired into our people into, in a great measure, uh, greater measure than what they now have. Uh, they may change their rulers and their forms of government, but they will not obtain a lasting liberty. Patrick Henry warned, bad men cannot make good citizens. It is impossible that a nation of infidels or idolaters should be a nation of free men. It is when a people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. A vegetated state of morals, a corrupted public conscience is incompatible with freedom. No free government, or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people, but a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. James Madison stated, the future and success of America is not in this constitution, but the laws of God upon which the constitution is founded. Noah Webster said, the duties of men are similarly comprised in the Ten Commandments, consisting of two tablets, one comprehending the duties which we owe immediately to God and the other duties which we owe to our fellow men. John Hancock, he had one of the most uh, impactful quotes I can think of when he said, Some boast of being friends to government. I am a friend to a righteous government to a government founded upon principles of reason and justice, but I glory in publicly avowing my eternal enmity to tyranny. And we're going to look at some of that idea here in uh, just a little bit, but, but today uh, we're going to be looking at Christian nationalism, and I want to define it and to understand what God teaches about it and how we ought to go forward in a nation such as ours. And uh, today it's interesting because if you go out and you, you hear the word Christian nationalism, 
Well, a lot of negative connotations come. In fact, if you were to go out and say you're a Christian nationalist, pretty soon you're going to have people going and saying that, that, that you're a racist, and you're going to have people saying that this is actually an anti-Christian idea, and, and all of these kinds of things. But as we looked at last week uh, in, in Sunday school, and as we were, were going through the, uh, the Humanist Manifesto and uh, uh, number, n- number two, the Humanist Manifesto number two, and, and going and looking at that, the, the whole idea of breaking it down, of course, and looking at it in a biblical light, the whole idea here of globalism is presented, and the reality of it is, is that globalism is an antichrist idea. It is an antichrist, the spirit of the antichrist. In Christians, the, the biblical worldview of Christians, by default, our position is nationalism, and we're going to be uh, looking at that today. Now, of course, you can be an anti-Christian nationalist, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss some of that a little bit too, but the reality of it is is that the actual position for Christians is nationalism. Now, it should be Christian nationalism, but we're going to look at that here in just a moment. Today, though, I want to start off with a few texts that I believe are absolutely vital to understanding this principle, and the first one is, is in Proverbs 14, 34. Proverbs 14, 34. This is a familiar passage of scripture. I've said it before, uh, and I'll say it again, and we need to do it. We need to go and get a banner that, that has this up, and every church should put this out, and this should be the proclamation that they have today because of the wickedness that is in our world, and specifically the wickedness that's in our nation. This ought to be the proclamation that every church has, and this is what it says in Proverbs 14, verse 34. It says this, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Psalm 94, verses 20 through 21 says this, Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Now, we read this next passage for scripture reading, but I want to go ahead and read it again, remind us of the text. Uh, and we're going to come to this text here. It'll be the text that we finish up with actually this morning, uh, but Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, it says this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, saying, his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, the text I want to start off with this morning is found in Acts, Acts chapter 17, Verse 26, and I believe this is probably uh, one of the most important passages of Scripture as it comes to this idea of Christian nationalism. And, and we're going to see why here, but in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And it says in Acts 17, verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, 
and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This is an important passage when it comes uh, to this idea of Christian nationalism. And the first thing I want us to see here this morning is that God made nations. God made nations. And it says here, once again, Acts 17, 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. God made nations. For the Christian, as it comes to our worldview, our default position is nationalism. Because God made nations. God made nations. This is absolutely important. But I want us to notice here, uh, right away, and this is so important, you see God, God, God is, we sing this song, God only wise. He, he, he is wise. He's incredibly wise. Because if you go out, and, and it's as though God knew this was coming, of course he did. Uh, but, but if you go out and you tell somebody, you're a Christian nationalist, you know the first thing that's going to come up? The first thing that's going to come up in our world is that somebody's going to look at you and they're going to say, you're a racist. You're a racist. That's what they're going to say. You're a racist. But God is no dummy. And, and, and he equipped us with this. And it's as though he comes up and he looks. He's like, okay, Christian, look. You're, you're going to be facing this here. But you need to still have a biblical worldview. Because there's, there, there's so many people out there, so many Christians out there, at least people who claim the name of Christ, who abandon their biblical worldview because they're afraid that people are going to say mean things to them. But this is the most ridiculous one, this whole idea of being a Christian nationalist. That people get so upset and they get so afraid. Oh, somebody's going to say, I'm a racist. Oh, no. Well, God goes, look, the verse that clearly spells out that you are to be a nationalist. He says this. He says this. God made the, uh, or excuse me, he had made from one blood every nation. Notice it's from one blood that he makes every nation. From one blood. What is this talking about? What is this talking about? It's talking about the idea that we all come from Adam or Noah, if you want to go and take it a little bit further. We all have a clear relation in Noah. He's getting this idea that that when it tells uh, us here in in the idea of creation, that, that all these different animals, they go and they reproduce after their own kind and mankind uh, is the same way, but there's only one kind of man. Biblical anthropology tells us that it's one blood, there is one race, there's only one kind of human, and that is human beings. That's what it's talking about. In fact, let me read it this in the Amplified Version. In the Amplified Version, it says this, And he made from one common origin, one source, one blood, all nations of men to settle on the face of the earth, having definitively, or excuse me, definitely determined their allotted periods of time and fixed their boundaries of their habitation, their settlements, lands, and abodes. What was this one common origin source or one blood? What is it talking about? It's talking about Adam and Noah. All mankind can trace their origin back to Noah and go further back to Adam. Uh, This is an important part of Christian nationalism. God goes and as he tells us that he makes nations, he goes and he specifically sets it within the context that that he makes nations, not one nation, but all the different nations from one blood. From one blood. He is specifically going and forbidding racism from being part of the nationalism that he's talking about. 
True Christian nationalism is not racist. It's, it's anti-racist. It's against being racist right there. It's not this idea of going and saying that, that, that you should be racist or something like that. And so when you go and you say that you're a Christian nationalist and, and the person comes up and says, oh, because the only thing they've been watching is, is their, the, the, the mainstream media and things like that. And they just hear that, that if you're a Christian nationalist, you're a racist. So if you're for nationalism, especially if you're a Christian for nationalism, you're a racist. That's what they're going to tell you. You have a verse equipped right here to say, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on. In the biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, we are nationalists, but we're not racists. God forbids that. That's absolutely disgusting for being a racist. Now, it is true that some nationalists are racist. I think of Hitler, right? The National Social Workers Party. Okay, he was a nationalist. Wasn't a Christian nationalist. I think of the alt-right, which, by the way, a lot of times we stop and we, we, we you know, the alt-right, it gets uh, put as, as though they're conservative or uh, different things like that. Sometimes even people try to say that they're Christian and things like that. It's a ridiculous thing. But what does the alt-right stand for? What does that mean? It means alternative to the right. What's the alternative to the right here? I'm not a rocket scientist. Left. That's the alternative to the right. The alt-right, they're leftists. That's what they are. You can be a racist nationalist, but that disqualifies you from being a Christian nationalist. A Christian nationalist is not a racist. And of course, I'm speaking of this idea of racism in the, the, the proper normal terms, not this idea of, of uh, um, uh, what, what do you call that here? Uh, systemic racism. When I go and I say like, like being anti-racist, I'm just saying like we're against racism. I'm not talking about this whole idea of being anti-racist that you have to go and get down, bow down, and, and say, oh, I apologize for being white, or I apologize for this, or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about when I say anti-racism here. I'm not talking about applying critical race theory because critical race theory is racist. It's giving people merit based upon how they look. That's what it is. Within the most clear verse that God made nations and set their boundaries is an emphatic statement on the anthropology that is we are from one blood. We are all from one blood. We're from one race. We were made in the image of God. And this whole division is based upon uh, people. isn't based upon what they look like when it comes to Christian nationalism. It's based upon geography. When it comes to racism, though, it's based upon what they look like. And it's actually Darwinianism in nature. And it's demonic. Racism, true racism, is, is demonic and it's Darwinian. Which, by the way, if you read The Origin of Species, it's an incredibly racist book. Their foundation, the world's foundation, based upon Darwinianism, based upon this idea of the origin of species, the survival of the fittest, all this kind of stuff, it actually is racist at its foundation. Christian nationalism starts from the premise that mankind is divided by geography. We're not divided by pigmentation or how someone looks. But God set boundaries and times for the boundaries of the nations. 
And this is important to go and to look at. In fact, Woos translates the verse this way, and he made out of one source material every nation of mankind to inhabit the entire surface of the earth, having marked out the limitations of strategic uh, epical periods of time which have been appointed in fixed boundaries of their occupancy. After the flood, God commanded mankind, Noah and his family at the time, to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 9-1. To fill the earth. He also then went on and gave them civil government in verses 6 and 7. I wish we had time to go and to look at this in Genesis 9, but you're going to have to go and look it up later. It's absolutely a foundational passage of Scripture to understand biblical anthropology, to understand uh, civics, to understand uh, really what, what's happening in our world today. It is Genesis 9. It's very, very, very foundational. It tells you the real reason for the rainbow as well in there. But, but in verses 6 and 7 in Genesis chapter 9, it, it, God goes and he, he establishes civil government by going and, and starting, um, or by giving us uh, capital punishment. Uh, a man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And so God goes and he, he, he starts this idea and he goes and he gives civil government to mankind at this point of time. Now, of course, uh, the problem was, was that there was a man named Nimrod uh, who decided to have a great centralized government and create a tower that would reach to heaven uh, as it defied God's command. So God's command was to Noah. He goes and he tells Noah and, and his children and, and, and his family, Noah's family, he goes and he says, look, this is what you need to go and do. You need to be fruitful. You need to multiply. You need to go and fill the earth. And by the way, here's civil government. And, and so what is he going and saying? You need to go and make nations. It's an implicit command to go into, uh, or in a, it's an implied command to go into make nations. Uh, and, and to decentralize through nations. As you go and you fill the earth and you spread out geography, especially because of the time of technology and things like that, they didn't have Zoom and Skype and uh, Facebook Live or, or anything like that. They didn't have telephones to go into, to keep them connected. They, they, were, they were going to naturally go and create little areas or nations or societies, probably start off as, as, as family, and then as the family grows, it becomes a town or, or, or a village, and then a town, and then a city, and, and so on and so forth, and then it becomes a nation. But, but it becomes a decentralized idea as they're going and spreading out and they're filling everything, but there was this guy who had a great idea, uh, the great mighty hunter Nimrod, and he goes and he comes and he says, you know what, we're going to go against God's command, and we're going to go and create a tower, and this tower is going to reach up to heaven, and it's going to be great and wonderful and all this kind of stuff. Of course, it's against God's command. They're not being going out. They're not being fruitful. They're not multiplying. They're not filling the earth. They're going and doing their own thing, so what did God come down and do? He struck the people and he confused their languages, and that's why we call this tower the Tower of Babel. God confused their speech, uh, making mankind decentralized and have to go and start decentralized governments and settlements as he intended. Uh, God even records the separation of the continents in the days of Peleg uh, in Genesis chapter 10, not too far after here. Uh, in, in it says uh, there, well, we, won't, we won't read that, it's Genesis 10, 25. Uh, but he goes and he even goes and spreads that out, spreads out the continents before we had Pangea, and then he goes and he spreads the continents out during Peleg. But it's implicit that God was commanding them to make nations. 
As, uh, as the further mankind spread out, the more necessity it would be to decentralize the civil government that God had just given them in Genesis chapter 9. The Tower of Babel was the first group, though. Understand this here. The Tower of Babel, when they uh, ignored God's command, the Tower of Babel was the first group of communal globalists, or what we might call communists. As they came and they got together and they, they, they worked on one project together to go and to do this, and they ignored God's command. I want us to notice here that, that, that globalism always is ignoring God's command, the implicit command of decentralized government that we can see throughout Scripture. The other thing I want us to notice here, because this is quite important, I think, for us to notice, is that it is impossible to not be a nimrod if you're a communist or a globalist. They're the same thing, but you, you must be a nimrod if you are a globalist. Every globalist is a nimrod, because it was nimrod who was leading this Tower of Babel. He was the leader of the, uh, com, uh, of the communal globalists, or what we would call communists. If you're a globalist, you're by definition a Nimrod. A few further thoughts on, on God being a nationalist here before we go to our second point. Israel was to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests to other nations. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, it says this, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, or excuse me, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Abraham, he was promised by God these things. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says this, Now the Lord God had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. All nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 17, 4, it says this, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. We see here that God designed Israel to go and to be a, a kingdom of priests to other nations, so that they might point other nations to God. And from Abraham, God promised to make him a great nation, which of course is Israel that he was talking about, that would go and bless through that nation, would go and bless all the families of the earth, which that was through the given promise of Jesus Christ, who is the one who was to crush the serpent's head in Genesis chapter 3. What an incredible thing. But then also from Abraham came many nations. And we can, we can see that today through, through his descendants. Of course, Isaac wasn't his only child. Ishmael wasn't his only other child either. You had, you, you had other children after Sarah went and passed away. And, and from him, there were many nations. Not a globalist idea has God, but a many nations idea. The second point I want us to see today is that Christian nationalism must be based in righteousness. This is so important. Christian nationalism must be based on righteousness. Proverbs 14, 34, great verse. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
As Christians, our default position is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, is what Scripture tells us. It tells us that we're to love God with everything we have, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We think about those two things, right? Well, Christians, therefore, want what is best for their neighbor, and what is best for their neighbor? Righteousness. Righteousness is always what is best for your neighbor. Why should every Christian speak out against sin, and specifically national sin? Because you cannot love your neighbor without it. You cannot love your neighbor while letting them live in sin and not hear that there's a warning That sin is destructive, that it will destroy your life, that it will destroy your nation, that it will destroy your family, that it will destroy everything you have because that is the nature of sin. Satan is a thief and the thief comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what happens. Christian nationalism is based upon righteousness. If there's not a proclamation of righteousness, it's not Christian nationalism. When Christians don't stand for righteousness, they are hoping their nation would fail and encouraging their neighbors to go to hell. That's why it's imperative to stand for righteousness. It says here, sin is a reproach to any people. And we think of that idea of being a reproach to any people, we can understand that it always, it always brings a nation down. No nation has ever been destroyed for the sake of righteousness. God has never been up uh, up in heaven and looked down and said, Oh man, that nation, they're just too righteous, too righteous, time to destroy them. God's never done that. He has preserved nations because of their righteousness. He destroys nations because of their sin. No nation has ever been destroyed for the sake of righteousness. The standard is God's moral law. If you not hold uh, this up in our nation, we are hating our neighbor. We must go and take God's moral law, take his word, and put it up as our standard. This is our standard for our nation. And we proclaim this and we call our nation to repent, to return to this. We read the quotes from the founding fathers. I, I, I think of James Madison's quote where he goes and he says that the success of our nation isn't, founded, isn't based in our constitution, but it's, it's, it's found in the laws upon which the constitution was founded upon. What was he talking about? He's talking about the word of God. That's what he's talking about. Christian nationalism doesn't have blind loyalty to their nation. They have a loyalty that wants what is best for their nation, and that is always righteousness. A Christian nationalist has loyalty to God. We we think about this idea here. Anything that, that is done under the name of the stars and stripes, though I love the stars and stripes, though I think we have a majestic flag, uh, th- though I, I, I believe and I love America, The reality of it is is that we don't blindly follow anything that comes as a decree from the top down or anything like that because our loyalty is ultimately to what is best for the stars and stripes and that is always righteousness. It is always righteousness. There is a reason that Christian comes before nationalist in the, in the phrase Christian nationalist, it's because it is first in priority. We are first Christians. 
but also it is a descriptor of the type of nationalism that we have. We're not just any kind of nationalists. We are Christian nationalists. And so therefore, our loyalty is to righteousness. It's to righteousness. We want what's best for our nation. In Psalm 94, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Shall the throne of iniquity which devices evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. It's important that we understand this because this, is, this might be what you're thinking. Well, that's great that our, 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 that our loyalty is to righteousness, but what do we do if we live in a wicked nation? Because you can look around and you can see wickedness in our nation. Well, Scripture addresses this. There are nations that make evil through laws. Did you catch that here? It says, shall the throne of iniquity, then catch this, which devises evil by law, which devises evil by law. There are nations that do that. There are nations that go, and, and, and because most people, they're, they're not willing to go against what is said is legal or, or, or something like that. You know, they want to be law-abiding citizens. They want to go and do what's legal, uh, things like that. Most people don't want to get in trouble because it's uncomfortable when you get in trouble. If you, if you get put in jail or if you uh, get, get hung or if you, or if you get put in a firing squad or something like that or burned at the stake, it's not very comfortable. It's not very comfortable to go into to, to be put in jail for seven months or something like that. So most people will go and comply. And, and so a, a lot of wicked people go and they stop and they say, you know what? Let's go and let's make evil things the law of the land. And we'll go and, and be against righteousness. This is why we care so much about putting what God says is right and wrong into our laws because there are nations that go and they, they say, well, what does it say here? It says they devise evil by law. They devise evil by law. And this is why we care about, uh, so much about putting what God says is right and wrong in our laws. These nations who do this put evil and wickedness things. They devise evil by law. These nations who do that, they do not have fellowship with God. And then notice the descriptor in verse 21. It says this, They gather together against the life of the righteous and they condemn innocent blood. Can you say abortion? That's a descriptor of a nation. That's a, that, that is, that is a, a symbol. That, that, is, that, that is what a nation does who devises evil by law is that they shed innocent blood. And they go against the life of the righteous. But how does a Christian nationalist approach living in a wicked nation? How do we do that? How do we do that? I, I think this is where a lot of the rub is today, where a lot of people don't understand Christian nationalism. Because some people think, okay, we have to be everything, stars and stripes, completely for it. Everything and all of the wickedness that's happening in our nation. Otherwise, we're not being a nationalist. and We're to love our nation. That's right. We are to love our nation. We're on the side of righteousness. But let me answer this question by quoting Pastor Richard Wormbrand in his famous book, Tortured for Christ. He says this, quote, A pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers, with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself at all times. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. 
the communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren, but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that he would continue to be beat until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bored as long as he could, and then he cried out son to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I cannot bear your beating anymore. The son answered, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. Close quote. They end up beating that son to death in front of his father. Here we see a nation that became corrupted with the evil of communism. Which, by the way, from reading and studying communism, this is actually, I I don't want to make any light of this. It's it's difficult to read. The communists did wicked, wicked, evil, horrific things to Christians. They hate Christians. They hate religion. In fact, Lenin and Marx both said that religion is the opiate of the people. They despised religion. Specifically, they despised the the, the Christian religion. And and they say things that I would be embarrassed to repeat. Because they were so wicked to Christians. Just recently, I was talking to a young man, young college student, uh, going to a community college in Iowa. And we were were talking about politics. Politics come up. And as we were talking, uh, uh, we were talking about about this. And and, and he makes the statement that, you know, he wouldn't want to go full communist. But, but, you know, the communists had some pretty good ideas. So he's somewhat communist. This is from a community college. Folks, we, we, we have to get in. We have to break through to these college students. We're going to lose a generation to this evil, evil wickedness. They make no doubt about it. Socialism, communism, Marxism. It's evil, evil, wicked, and against God. Against his design, against his worldview. It's horrific. But here we see a nation that became corrupted with the evil of communism, yet the boy was still a nationalist crying out, His fatherland! The boy wasn't loyal to the wicked rulers who abused the delegated authority that God gave to civil government. Rather, he was loyal to Christ, and that means he was loyal to the legitimate delegated authority, and he hoped, he had hope of restoring his nation to it. And that's how we can be a Christian nationalist in a wicked place, is that we are against the abuses, or what we might call tyranny, of those who would abuse the authority that God delegates. God delegates authority. He gives some to family government. He gives some to church government. He gives some to self-government. And he gives some to civil government. He delegates authority. And each place has a scope as to which they're not to go outside of. 
They're not to go and to invade the family government, the civil government's not, the family government's not to invade the civil government either. But, but the, the church government is not to invade the civil government, the civil government's not to invade the church government. We go and we, we see these things, there is a separation of these authorities. But ultimately, we go and we say we are loyal to Christ. And that's why he could cry out, Jesus and my fatherland, even though he was being beaten to death by the government. Because he was loyal to his nation, the legitimate nation, the nation that had legitimate authority that God had given him. This is where the Christian nationalist holds the line. We gladly shout, our fatherland. But when we do, we oppose tyrants. And we hold up God's design for civil government and for nations. That boy lost his life for his God and his country. The last point I want us to see here today is in Psalm chapter 2, and that is that a wise nation serves God. I want to go ahead and read this. I know we've read it a few times here this morning, but Psalm chapter 2 is such an impactful and important passage of Scripture. So if you'd follow along as I read once again, Psalm chapter 2. It says in Psalm chapter 2, Why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold him in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Starts off here, this passage of scripture, this chapter, Psalm chapter two, it says, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage and people plot vain things? I think that's a great descriptor of the world that we're living in today. We have nations that are raging. Our nation is raging. It's been raging. We have people who are plotting vain things. But why do the nations rage? It says here, because they take counsel against the Lord. They say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What are God's bonds and cords for a nation? It's his moral law. It's his moral law. God's moral law, which the heart of it is found in the Ten Commandments. It binds a nation to righteousness just as it does an individual. But nations rage because they have cast off. God's law. When you set aside God's moral order, chaos ensues. Nations rage. Things fall apart. It's out of order. It doesn't work. Verses six and seven, or excuse me, six through nine, they're prophetic and they're yet to be fulfilled. Where it says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance 
and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Have this hope Christ will come back. And when he comes back, he will bring a sword and he will rule with the rod of iron in the millennial reign. And when he comes back with that sword, it's not a decorative sword. It's not just a pretty looking sword. It's a sword that he uses to destroy the Antichrist, to destroy the false prophet and their followers in the battle of Armageddon. That's why Jesus comes back. And he will rule with a rod of iron in the millennial reign. It's prophetic. But then after this, and yet to be fulfilled, but yet after this here in verses 10 through 12, God gives advice to kings and judges, or we might say nations. He gives advice to nations. And this is what he says. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Be wise, O kings. The beginning of wisdom is what? It's the fear of the Lord. What is he saying? Fear me, kings. Fear God. The advice is to fear God. Then he says to be instructed. Be instructed by who? God. How? Through his word. Nations ought to fear God. They have to be instructed through the word of God. Then he says, serve the Lord. What does it take to serve the Lord? Obedience. Takes a recognition that there is a higher authority. That their authority is delegated from God. That's what it takes. It says something interesting here. It says, kiss the son. If you go and you study this, the, the word work for worship throughout Scripture, one of the ideas here, and one of the, the greetings that we had, and by the way, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that we shake hands in the United States. I know we kind of quit doing that with COVID, but I'd much rather shake hands than this, and I think you'll understand why. But, but in, in the, the, the ancient uh, greeting system here, if you met somebody who is an equal, you would go and you would, you would kiss them on the lips. Uh, I, you know, greet one another, holy kiss. No, thank you. You'd go and, 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 and greet one another with a kiss. If there were somebody in slight rank, you know, you'd go and you would kiss them on the cheeks. But, but specifically here, thinking in the military terms, if there was somebody here who was a, uh, a higher, a general, down to like a private, what would they go and do? They would go and they would throw kisses is the idea in the word. They would throw kisses. And this would be the idea that they would go and they would bow themselves down and they would throw kisses at the feet of the superior one. And this is what God is telling the kings, the nations to do. The idea is to submit or to be ruled by God, to submit to him. Then it says, trust in him. The motto of the United States is, in God we trust. In God we trust. We need to return to that. God's advice for nations was to be a Christian nation. Today, as we conclude, I want to conclude by challenging us to remember our Christian heritage in this nation. I want to challenge us to be a true Christian nationalist, committed to righteousness, 
heeding the advice that God gives. Put Christ first for the sake of your nation. Love your neighbor by loving God most. Call for your nation to kiss the Son by submitting to the moral law of Christ. On this Independence Day, remember we are only dependent, or excuse me, we're only independent from tyrants when we are dependent upon Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity given us to come. To look into your word, Father, we pray that it would touch our hearts and our minds. And Father, that you might touch our nation, that she might repent. And Father, we would just pray that this would be to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.